I'm Yoe Shaw. I'm Kia Miakonatis. We're the hosts of the NPR podcast, Invisibilia. You can think of Invisibilia kind of like a sonic blacklight. When you switch us on, you will hear surprising and intimate stories. Stories that help you notice things in your world that maybe you didn't see before. Listen to the Invisibilia podcast from NPR. I was taking a walk and I was trying to decide, should I, should I do the Selena film or not? And I met two little girls. You have these moments in your life as a filmmaker, and I think everybody's life, where it's almost like the cosmos sends you a message, right? And I met these two little girls. One was eight years old, one was 10 years old. They were Chicana, Mexicanas, and they had Selena t-shirts on. And I asked them, why do you love Selena? And they looked up at me and they said, because she looks like us. Wow. And that was like a, an arrow to my heart. It just broke my heart. Because I realized at that moment that all of our young people and all of our young women, they have no images on the screen that they can see, that they can relate to, that they can identify with. They live in a world of, of blonde <laughs> young women and they have no no young women who look like them. And I, they have no Disney princess. They, we still don't have a Disney princess. So at that moment, I thought, I, I'm going to make this film and I'm going to make it for those young girls. I'm going to give them their princess. And, and that's what started my journey to do this film. I was very touched by Selena's light. And I felt that I wanted to do a film to bring all the talent that I have and bring all the most talented people I know to come together to make a film that would preserve that beautiful life of her so it could live forever. From NPR Music, this is Alt Latino. I'm Felix Contreras. This week we're celebrating La Reina Selena. Selena Quintanilla Perez would have turned 50 years old this week, and since her untimely death at age 25, she has become a powerful symbol of Latina identity. And this week, we explore that. And we start with filmmaker Gregory Nava. He wrote and directed the 1997 biopic that starred Jennifer Lopez. I'll tell you a story. They have this big um, event, outdoor screening event, Sinespi in Los Angeles. And they did a 20th anniversary screening of Selena at Sinespia. And I was invited, Eddie Olmos as well, we both went. I hadn't really seen the film since we first made it. And they told me at Sinespia that there were 6,000 people there. 6,000 people sold out. They could have sold more tickets, thousands more tickets. They told me it sold out in, in less than two hours. It was the fastest sellout they've ever had in the history of Sinespia. The, 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 the place was packed. Eddie and I were looking and we're going, we couldn't believe it, 6,000 people. And <clears throat> there I saw these women who were like the young girls I met, only now they were grown up. Mm -hmm. And they had their daughters and they were dressed like Selena and their little daughters were dressed like Selena. It was almost like 
The legacy was being passed on to their children and they had grown up with Selena. And the entire audience member had the film memorized. They, they recited all the dialogue along with the film and they sang the songs along with the film and danced along with the film. And Eddie and I were going like, we couldn't believe it. When Eddie does his famous scene about it's tough to be a Mexican American, the whole audience had memorized that scene and they were reciting the it's tough to be a Mexican American along with the movie and going crazy. I mean, applauding and going nuts. Listen, being Mexican American is tough. Anglos jump all over you if you don't speak English perfectly. Mexicans jump all over you if you don't speak Spanish perfectly. We've got to be twice as perfect as anybody else. Eddie and I looked at each other and we went, what, what, what have we wrought? I mean, a movie takes on a life of its own after you make it. And you realize that this film had taken on this tremendous life outside of anything that we had anticipated or anything that Warner Brothers had anticipated. The movie's more popular now than it was when we first made it. So I think that for us, it is humbling to see the work that we did. And again, I feel like we were vessels through which this thing flowed. And I think that Selena, where she is now in heaven, is smiling at all of us and with all of us at the beauty of the legacy of the film. Now, a couple of things happened to Selena's legacy, and Gregory Nava's film had a lot to do with it. In particular, it solidified and advanced her legacy as a source of pride within the Tejana community, the Chicana community, which is probably more so than ever right now. And I'm always astounded at how powerful that legacy is with people who were not even born during the time she was performing. She's become a symbol, almost mythic. So many things to so many different people. And we're seeing that at the moment right now with things like the recent podcast, Anything for Selena, and Selena the Series, a program featured recently on Netflix. And just what does all of that mean to her legacy? Well, I asked some experts about that. Hi, I'm Maria Garcia, and I'm the creator and host of the podcast, Anything for Selena. Dr. Sonia Aleman, I'm an associate professor in Mexican-American studies um, in the Department of Race, Ethnicity, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at the University of Texas at San Antonio. And you teach a class on Selena. I do. Selena, a Mexican-American identity and experience. I'm Deborah Paredes. Uh, I'm the author of Selenidad, Selena, Latinos, and the Performance of Memory. I think Selena's legacy is ever-present, not just in all of the proliferation of the commodities we've seen, right? Whether it's t-shirts at Target or at Forever 21 or the MAC Cosmetics or the show on Netflix. I said in my book, and I think it's you know proven to be true in the years since, that it's always been more interesting to me to look beyond the official commemorations of Selena to really understand her impact among not just Latinos, but the world at large. And I think we see that precisely in the tremendous proliferation of Latina voices that we see, whether they are commemorating Selena directly, whether that's Maria's podcast or Kat Cadenas writing in the recent issue of Texas Monthly or any number of young women who I think are 
finding their own voice, sometimes through the remembrance of Selena. But I do believe that that is where I think we find so vibrantly her legacy, just as we saw it in those thousands of young Latinas who auditioned for the role of her, of her for the 1997 movie. And for them, it wasn't really about being cast in the movie in many ways. Those young Latinas I talked to then sort of understood, like, maybe this is a publicity stunt, but I'm not here for that, right? I'm here for articulating my own voice and my own style and, and my own independence. And so I think that definitely continues to be part of the legacy we see of Selena. And Maria, from your perspective as a journalist, what is her legacy? Oh my gosh. Well, I wrote a whole nine episode podcast about it. So I'm going to try, I'm going to try Felix to, <laughs> to condense it here for you. But first of all, I just want to say I read Dr. Paredes's book. It served so much to inform my own exploration of Selena and Dr. Paredes is right. Like what is most amazing to me about her legacy is that she becomes this vessel through which we look at really deep issues of race, of belonging, of class, and find our own voices in the midst of that exploration. And that's what happened with Anything for Selena with a podcast. I was really hungry to do a journalistic deep dive that really unpacked Selena's cultural impact from media to music, but also body politics and our sense of Latino belonging in the U.S. And what I found is that she has become perhaps the most ubiquitous symbol that her face and her iconography has become a shorthand, a, a symbol for an entire sort of American identity or American ethos of belonging. And it's been such a powerful journey to sort of discover her more deeply and in the process discover myself. This is not a new phenomena. Like people have been devoted and have loved her for generations. What does feel like a particular moment for me right now is that there's more generations that she has been passed down to and so she's gone from artist to icon to symbol to cultural heritage. And that has intensified over the years just because we're able now to pass her on to even more generations. And I also think there's a coming of age of people like myself who have these very formative memories of her in childhood and are now able to sort of articulate them. And I think we've seen that before with the scholarship before, but I think that's the thing about cultural heritage, right? Is that each generation has an opportunity to analyze it anew. And I think we're, we're seeing that. Sonia, I'd like to get you to weigh in, especially considering the fact that you Actually, you teach a class on Selena so that the significance of that legacy must be part of your core curriculum. Yeah, sure. And, and we are relying on, on the work of scholars like Dr. Paredes. It was the key text in the course, as well as other um, scholars who have you know written about her. And I think that what was resounding, especially um, for this young, younger generation of fans, right? So the students that were in my class, the majority of them were born after she died. 
And so the memories, right, they have of her or their knowledge of her has been from a time period without being on the earth with her, right? Never seeing her live, never seeing those kinds of things in person and having those personal memories. But what was resounding and what I think why she matters to them, what they conveyed, right, is that she really validates their existence, right? Because the conditions that they are living in mirror what she went through, right? What it's like to live in South Texas in this bicultural, bilingual space that in some ways draws on and commodifies, right, aspects of our culture, but denies and segregates and still marginalizes, right, so much of who you are. And so she validates what it's like to be resilient in that kind of space and rise above it and be successful and celebrate, right, the the challenges with having to recover lost language and knowledge about your community and feeling pride in it and validating like her aesthetic, her look, her body type, right? All of that is helping them accept their own, right? Because they're they're getting this, the same kind of messages that she would have gotten at the time that I got at the time as a contemporary of hers, right? I'm just two years younger than Selena. And so knowing that that she continues right to provide that validation in addition to right the numerous records that she broke um, the barriers that she crossed with her musical success i think that she really provides that that sense of validation as you speak about breaking barriers i want to play a little bit of tape for you with the film director gregory nava who did the 1997 uh, biopic of selena You know, when the movie was released, 80% of our box office at the theaters was uh, Latino, was Hispanic. But the film took on another life uh, when it appeared on cable. And for many, many years, it was the number one film played on cable television. Mm. Huge. Whenever anybody put it on, they got big ratings. And I even had to then recut and make an expanded version of Selena with more scenes and more music from the movie for cable TV because people wanted more, more and more and more. And in cable, the film crossed over. It crossed over from the Latino audience to the Anglo African-American audiences. And today, Everybody knows that movie, Selena, not just Latinos. Oh, I say, oh, I made Selena. Everybody goes crazy. I was at a weight loss spa and met a good old boy from Texas. When he found out I made Selena, he went nuts. That's his favorite movie about Texas, you know, is Selena, right? Here's this white, fat, old white guy, you know, loves Selena. I go to, uh, you know, stores and there are these blonde young women and they find out I made Selena and that's their favorite movie and their daughter's favorite movie. So the Selena phenomenon and her legacy has now permeated the whole United States, not just the Latino community. And um, again, that was because of everybody starting to watch the film when it went on television. So it's still one of the most popular films on cable but for many, many years, it was the most popular film on cable. So the, the film has a quality, and I think, again, this is Selena's spirit, that transcends, you know, just being put in a Latino box. Because here's the thing, Selena, what she had, the quality that she had, and we wanted to capture this in the film, she could cross over things. 
in a way that nobody else had done before or really since. And here's this young woman, she was 23 when she died. She had this spirit. So what they told me, what her family told me and her friends told me, it wasn't just that she crossed over to mainstream English uh, at the end of her career. The first big crossover that Selena made was as a woman in the Tejano music world, because the Tejano music world was all men. Selena was a woman. She became the most popular figure in Tejano music. She conquered Tejano music. She brought Tejano music to the country as a woman. And that had never happened before. So that was her first big crossover. Her next big crossover was as a Tejana or Chicana, Mexican-American in Mexico. You know that in Mexico, they don't accept us. We're not well-liked there necessarily, right? Here's this woman, she doesn't even speak Spanish that well. She becomes the biggest thing, a musical star in Mexico. They love her. This was a huge deal. We show that in the Monterey concert. Police are sending extra help. We were not prepared for a crowd this big. I've never seen anything like it. And then finally, at the end of her life, she crosses over from Spanish-speaking music into English music with Dreaming of You and all of these, uh, they're now standards. So Selena could move through barriers that nobody else had been able to cross. She just walked through them as if they didn't exist. And the movie, channeling her spirit, did the same thing, you know? Even in death, Selena's spirit brought barriers down. Nui became hugely successful with every audience in the country because she had that special spirit. So what Selena had wasn't just Latina, it was universal. She had a universal light that has spread everywhere. Any responses, any replies, any comments on what Mr. Nava said? The story that's often told about Selena that can be compelling for so many is that she crossed over, right? And that she crossed over many different kinds of borders, linguistic, aesthetic, musical, geographical. But I would kind of push back against that a little bit to say, as a Tejana, maybe because I grew up again in the same generation, I was the same age as Selena from South Texas, she had been crossing over her whole life because as a Tejana, she had grown up with a very bicultural identity. So she was just as likely to rehearse Janet Jackson dance moves during the week and dance a cumbia on the weekends at the family wedding, right? That, that those things were part of who she was. And so in many ways, the narratives often are about crossover and they're real crossovers that happen in the, in the recording industry. But I would say that it was just simply her, I think, in many ways expressing what was, in fact, true to her very experience as, as a Tejana of the Generation X experience. And then I would also say, in particular, around the crossovers that she did that I think have proved so important that continue to be expressed by so many who remember her, is the particular crossovers that she made around language, right? That she grew up, like many of us, speaking English she had a lot of shame, and as we all, many of us did, around learning Spanish, not knowing Spanish. And the fact that she publicly struggled with that and just sort of put it out there for all of us, instead of it becoming a point of shame, it became a point of connection, like, oh, okay, we, Selena's like us, and we all struggle, and we can do it too. And I think that that scene in the movie at the Monterrey press conference. Me siento muy... 
excited. <laughs> she is managing the fact that she isn't the best Spanish speaker, but she kind of tries to figure out how to perform the codes of a good daughter at the, <laughs> at the press conference or to perform the ways that she wows them with her personality and with her music, of course. And she really exemplified the ways that so many of us have negotiated our relationship to Spanish and English. And I think that crossover in particular was really powerful for so many of us. very first memory I have of Selena is from when I'm seven years old. Um, I saw her on television and I remember her cascade of long black hair, her crimson lips, her big hoops. And I also remember her accent, you know, growing up in an immigrant household on the U.S.-Mexico border. I was traversing the border as well in Mexico on the weekend and in the States during the week. And my language started sounding different um, because I was going to school and I was learning very academic, formal English. So my vocabulary in English was expanding while my vocabulary in Spanish was sort of staying the same, uh, like a, a very casual, familiar Spanish. And so kids started calling me a pocha, somebody who sort of like debases the language with our crass working class Spanglish. And so I remember clearly at that moment, it feeling meaningful to me and I couldn't articulate it. I hadn't intellectualized it, but I remember how it landed in my heart. I remember that it mattered that she spoke that way because I knew that that way of speaking was so derided. And here was this woman who took joy and pride in an identity that had been so derided. The world was set up to make women like Selena wilt, but she didn't, she bloomed. And that made a huge impression on me. It stayed with me forever since I was seven years old. And that's why now at 35, like as a journalist, I wanted to go back and unpack like why it truly mattered. The landscape in which Selena had to navigate her life as, even if she didn't use this term herself, right? But as a Chicana in the South Texas kind of world, you are constantly, right? Kind of like code switching in all different sorts of ways, weaving back and forth, reading the world, like here, it's okay for me to be this way. Here, it's okay for me to be this way. And so I think that spilled over right into the way that she pursued her career because that's how she knew the world. That's how she navigated the world because that's, you know, who she was at that time. And I and I do want to also offer another point of pushback to Gregory Nava's comments about her doing these kinds of things effortlessly. I don't think that it was effortlessly. The movie gave us this beautiful narrative or sound narrative of, of it happened kind of magically because she had this undeniable charisma. But Maria, your podcast maps this out really nicely, right? This was about survival for her family. They had to go through really hard times to get to those peaks and cross those barriers. There was a lot of sacrifices. They were living sometimes like day to day. They had to figure out how to put things together for performances. All of those successes were years in the making and not just all on her own, right? It was a family endeavor. And so I, I think it's, it's kind of does a little bit of a disservice to the Quintanilla family to not acknowledge that all of them worked towards the barriers that she crossed. I do 
have some concerns about the way her disposition and the way her personality is portrayed. There were moments in the Netflix series where she was a little mousy. She was kind of in the background. She was not super sort of at the center of her artistry. And the Selena that I've come to know through my research was detail-oriented, was strategic, was thinking deeply about the blending of musical genres because it was just a natural extension of who she was. She was she was deeply influenced, particularly by Black divas and A Taste of Honey, Janet Jackson, Whitney Houston. And she talked about them and cited them very specifically. And she was thinking a lot with a, like a lot of intentionality about how to bring in that part of herself, how to bring in the R&B that was informing her artistically into this form of American roots music, because that's what Tejano is. It's American roots music in the Southwest. And she was thinking about her artistry in a very high creative level. People sort of frame this idea of like, she was crossing over. Well, actually, like she was just being herself and she was walking in the world and the world was sort of crossing over in front of her. You know what I mean, like that's what was happening. She was just being her true, authentic self. And her true, authentic self was somebody who had grown up on Tejano music and a very r- rural musical experience rooted in working class specific Mexican American sound. But she was also informed by the sophisticated mariachi that her mother listened to. She was also informed by like American pop. She was sort of ahead of her time in, in thinking through like what the model for the pop diva has become since then. And people like Beyonce have yeah. said as much, right? Totally. I yeah. agree. And if we look at sort of the iterations of Beyonce's career, her career started a few years after Selena's death. So it serves as this like really great example of another sort of woman from Texas who started at a very young age, who was also sort of groomed for performance from a very young age as well, right? And we see that when Beyonce started, she start, she was under her father's wing, just as Selena was creatively and financially and in, in, in every way. Her father was her, her manager and sort of her creative ally. And then we saw Beyonce evolve as a creator and sort of then take charge and take the helm of her career. And we see the iterations of Beyonce from like... Beyonce under her father's management to then Beyonce blooming into herself and into who she wanted to be as a performer. When I think about that is when I feel the most loss for Selena, because I truly believe that that she would have had a long, illustrious career with like different iterations and different levels of evolution that she would be singing Latin trap right now with Bad Bunny and like that she would be at the top of her game. I absolutely would have had a business empire, right? Because she started that as well, right? Like envisioning like all the different ways she could be creative, right? She would have pioneered, right? What that looked like. Yeah, for sure. And that is a huge loss, right? For us all to not have, for her not to be able to, to reach that potential. I was just going to share that ironically, like it was kind of, I mean, there's lots of different factors that went into the Selena class being offered at UTSA last fall, but one of them that really helped kind of 
um, move the needle a little bit to get it um, on the books is because uh, a few years prior, UTSA offered a class on Beyonce. It was with the release of her Lemonade album. So there was a Black feminist course, right, that was just focused on Beyonce. And so it enabled me to make that larger argument, right, like that we, Selena deservedly, right, should have a class dedicated to her as well, right? There's enough, more than enough there to to fill a whole, whole class period. So yeah, that was really nice. Absolutely. I mean, and Beyonce has explicitly acknowledged, right, having seen Selena during her, when she was young. Met her. And really sort of understanding that as a as as one of the many models, certainly that informed her her own approach to to the industry. And I think that the fact that Selena was already at her age, drawing from so many different influences, really being dynamic and capacious in the influences that she was taking in is evidence that she would have continued to grow, right? Especially as she grew more to own the means of her production, which is what Beyonce, I think, is very astute at. So there is that sense of of loss precisely because we do have the evidence that it could have gone that way. Right. I feel like with Selena, from the very beginning, she, I think, was simultaneously remembered for the very particular ways that she represented um, the specificity of Tejana experiences and Tejana music and Tejana working class style and all of that. And her accent, as Maria mentioned earlier, a very particular accent, her dance moves, and simultaneously as someone who could also appeal to and be remembered as a Latina, right? As someone who could dance to Caribbean inflected moves, music. And I think that both of those things can still be held up in the same way if we think about the story of the Jacksons, right? And the story of their childhood tells us very much about de-industrialized Indiana, a particular moment in history, and yet also about the forces of the you know music industry at the time and all kinds of things. And Selena's story in very similar ways, right, is that kind of an, an, a story of the Americas in the same way, right? It is of, of a very particular moment in history and geography. And it is something bigger than that, right, which is exactly how she's been able to move from a very regionalized music and sound um, to the position of, of an icon. I think in some ways those things have always been, I think, a part of her memorial space, right, that specificity, that groundedness in that very specific moment and style and sound and something much bigger. imagining maybe a couple of years from now after kind of like the Netflix version of who she is right like has sat with the with the global population because it went out globally right it was accessible globally right to to folks to see like how they make sense of that story and what they take away I, I know what it was like for me to watch it right and to feel so represented right it was it's one of the few times in in my life where like Mexican-American, South Texas Mexican-American was felt like a really authentic representation, right? So for me, it captured that. When I watch it, I don't see it lost. I see it actually authentically represented. But I can only judge that from my from my lived experience. So I'm wondering, it was, it was more wondering what it, w- what it would be like to be on the other side of the world learning about her and what her family went through to reach that pinnacle of success, if those kind of details about 
Texas and South Texas and the borderlands kind of existence, how might they resonate with others? I think that they would probably latch on to different things, but I do think that there's something in, you know inherent about who she was that, that is so grounded in that experience that, that that's still going to be unshakable. I insisted that we shoot the movie in Texas. I want to shoot this in Selena's land with Selena's people, the Tejano community. The Tejano community, I knew, would support the movie in a way that would be overwhelming, that would bring power and production value to the screen that you could get nowhere else. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happened. The support of the Tejano community is another reason why the film has this power and this resonance. I mean, when we did the Houston Astrodome scene, we shot it at the Alamo Dome in uh, San Antonio. We had 35,000 extras. They all came for free. We didn't pay them. They just came to support the movie. What a scene that is. I mean, it is epic. But it is the Tejano community that made that scene great. Mm -hmm. When we wanted to do the Monterey scenes, 5,000 people would show up. 8,000 people would show up. We never paid for extras. They just came because they wanted to support Selena. So that is another reason why the film has this uh, magical quality. It's unlike anything I've ever done and any filmmaker I talk to, they've never had an experience like that. Where all of these things came together and it was almost as if Selena's spirit was reaching out to us and bringing all these things together so that her spirit could live on. I always feel that way. I feel like I didn't choose Selena, Selena chose me. Jennifer Lopez didn't choose Selena, Selena chose Jennifer Lopez. Selena brought the Tejano community to the film. All those things came together. It was her spirit that brought them together. And that focused this energy so that all of these moments, anything for Selena's, it's tough to be a Mexican-American, the washing machine, all of these iconic moments that the movie uh, has and that people love and they are always talking about and reperforming and comes as a result of the inspiration we all felt that I feel was Selena's beautiful light channeling through us. I have been in and out of, of Texas for most of my young adulthood and, and made annual trips to see family. And for a good portion, like between 2004 and 2015, and lived in Texas before then. And, and none of this seems like new or different, right? Her, her continued presence, her continued um, appreciation, the devotion, the way that people kind of still hold her dear. It feels very constant. It feels very consistent since, since the day we lost her. I've said for many years that she is our cultural inheritance in many ways for many Latinos. She is someone we do pass down. Our remembering of her has become a cultural tradition for us, and it's become a way that we've made sense of our own triumphs and tragedies. And I think that it is something that now there is a new generation, right, who has, has had their own experiences with Selena. And I think also this is a moment in which we, we've weathered 
five years of, of tremendous violence and upheaval against Latinos, which of course has been present you know, throughout. But like the moment in which Selena was killed in 1995, the last few years have been acutely devastating for so many Latino communities. And I think we've always turned to Selena in moments like this. She had a universal light that has spread everywhere. And I'm very proud that I was a part of being able to preserve that spirit and bring that to the world in making the film Selena. She is our princess and she is our guiding light. I love her and I'm very proud to, to have made that film. There's lots to think about when we're talking about Selena. I remember seeing Selena y los Dinos perform in Fresno back in the day, and I have to say that even then, she had a very loyal following that was attracted not just to the music, but also to her presence, her persona, whatever you want to call it. She had a special spark, and it's fascinating to see it still shining all of these years after her untimely passing. My thanks to filmmaker Gregory Nava, Maria Garcia, the creator and host of the podcast Anything for Selena, Dr. Sonia Aleman from the University of Texas at San Antonio, and Dr. Deborah Perez of Columbia University. And be sure to check out the essay that Dr. Paredes has written about Selena on our website at npr.org music. And also thanks to alt-Latino intern Ana Maria Sayer, who produced this week's episode. You've been listening to Alt Latino from NPR Music. I'm Felix Contreras. Thank you so much for listening. Be safe, vax up, keep your distance.